Welcome to Yimby Nation, a podcast exploring U.S. housing and the roadblocks to building more equitable neighborhoods. Join Jimmy, Peter, and V as they, and special guests, offer their unique perspectives on building more diverse communities and addressing the social problems that emanate from the lack of decent, safe, and affordable housing. Our hosts have served in the fields of advocacy and nonprofit, public, and private development, and are driven by their passion for community empowerment. Join the conversation and share your thoughts on social using hashtag YimbyNation. Today, we are blessed to have with us Dr. Karen DeBoer Walton, president of Elm City Communities. Dr. DeBoer Walton heads the largest public housing authority in the state of Connecticut. Before taking the helm of ECC, she served New Haven as chief operating officer and chief of staff for former mayor John DeStefano. Dr. DeBoer Walton is a trained clinical psychologist. Prior to her tenure at ECC and the city of New Haven, she served in positions with the State of Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services and Yale University's Child Study Center. She earned her BA from Boston University and MA and PhD from Boston University. In 2014, Dr. Deborah Walton was named one of the Network Journal's most influential Black women in business. In 2011 and 2013, she was named one of the 100 most influential Blacks in Connecticut. In 2015, she was awarded the Greater New Haven NAACP's Community Service Award. I cannot think of anyone better than you to kick off our podcast. Well, I am so pleased to be here. Thank you for, for having me. Jimmy, it's a real honor. You have been my mentor and my introduction to the world of affordable housing. And over the years, the collaborations with Peter and V on so many projects have been really, really wonderful. And so to be here on your Yimby Nation, first of all, I just love the name Yimby because so much of our work has been trying to get folks to say yes, as opposed to no to the kinds of work that we do. So yes, in my backyard is a perfect thing. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. Your position as head of ECC gives you a unique perspective as a landlord, developer, service provider policymaker, and advocate. Stout estimates September 4th, 2020, there are between 9.7 million and 14.2 million rental households in the United States that may be unable to pay rent and are at risk of eviction. This translates to between approximately 23.3 million and 34 million individual rentals. And eviction disproportionately affects Blacks, Latinx rentals, and rentals with children. Studies have shown that people of color, particularly Black and Latinx households, constitute approximately 80% of people being evicted. Give us your insight into what you have done and what needs to be done to address this upcoming tsunami that many housing advocates and experts say may be the biggest housing crisis in our history. Yeah, you know, Jimmy, thank you for framing the issue for us within the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. I want to take us back even before that, though, because Connecticut, like the nation, has been in an affordable housing crisis well before the pandemic. And HUD's own estimates acknowledge that of the income eligible folks for the kinds of programs that HUD offers, only one out of four actually get services. So we know that there are 
for every one family served, another three that should be served that haven't been and are living in real precarious kinds of living situations and unstable housing. And so then you bring on top of that the tsunami, as you talked about, of the COVID-19 pandemic, which upended folks' economic lives, created new levels of housing instability on top of healthcare worries and healthcare impacts and education disruptions and all of these things, we are now poised where what was already an untenable situation around people being able to access affordable, safe and decent housing that they can afford is now just exacerbated in ways that are really troubling. And you certainly raise the racial and ethnic disparities that we see as well. I I always think about the expression that says, when white America gets a cold, black America gets pneumonia. When white America gets COVID-19, it's like, I don't even know what the comparable is for what communities of color are going through, but it is degrees higher. So we, you know, we are really concerned for people in our own portfolio. I think there are some protections around eviction. The private market, though, is going to be hit very hard as some of the eviction moratoriums uh, start to lift and as people find the rental protection dollars to be insufficient. The estimate as of December in Connecticut alone was that there were probably at that point 150,000 families that were there not a moratorium in place would be facing eviction as a result of COVID-related loss of income. And when you are operating in the federally funded programs, you have the ability to adjust people's rent to reflect their fluctuations in income. But for many families, that was not sufficient for the kind of disruption. And as I started out with, far too many families are not being served through those federal platforms that provide those kinds of protections. And so I think we're going to see Whereas maybe your larger corporate landlords can weather the storm, I think you're going to see real disruption in the smaller landlords, in what we think of as the mom and pop landlords, the family that owns the three family home, perhaps lives in the home and rents out the other two floors, maybe rents out all three floors. They're typically not getting wealthy off of those properties. They're typically covering their costs. And when there's a disruption in terms of the flow of rent dollars, that disrupts their ability to meet their mortgage and other obligations. I think we are poised to see real disruption in communities that have a a good amount of rental housing, a good amount of that sort of two and three family rental housing. I think we're poised to see something that could look like the the mortgage crisis that we went through not too long ago and and the, the time of recession. So as a country, we need to recognize the severity of the crisis in front of us and have appropriate plans to support our families as they're moving through this recovery period. What actions can be taken by federal, state, or local governments to help address this issue? And what authority do these various governmental authorities have to prevent or delay eviction proceedings? You mentioned what you can do with the federally funded programs that are managed by the Housing Authority to adjust people's rents based on their changes in in income. But what else can be done outside of that context? I mean, this is the kind of thing that we all pay our taxes for, right? This is the kind of safety net service that our government has to jump in when disruptions like this, things that we could not have foreseen would, would happen and would happen and have the kinds of impacts. That's where your tax dollars really come in. This is where our federal government has to play a key role and has to provide resource. We've seen To this point, a couple of big federal relief efforts. They have included money for eviction protection, for rental assistance, 
And based upon the national advocates that do this work, they've been a step in the direction, but have been insufficient to really meet the need of what's out there. We now have a new federal administration. The Biden American Rescue Plan offers a proposal that's in the trillion dollar range, right? I think it's about $1.9 trillion that includes money for emergency rental and homelessness assistance. I believe there's about $30 billion in, in that bill that goes toward emergency rental. Yes, we need to get that passed. We also need to recognize that the national estimates say it really needs to be in the range of $100 billion to address the number of families that right now are behind in rent. So one thing I think we've got to be pushing our federal government to take the kind of big, bold action that needs to happen to protect the families that are most at risk. COVID relief measures have also included extensions to unemployment benefits and additional unemployment benefits, along with the stimulus payments. Families need that, right? They need that access to money to help them cover their bills. And there was a great New York Times Sunday article that focused in on the impact of getting that additional $600 and how that literally moved families out of poverty and how we saw the reduction in poverty. In the midst of a pandemic, we saw a reduction in poverty. So it was a real clear example of what folks that talk about things like basic income, basic minimum income, and things we heard during the last presidential campaigns. It's a real good demonstration of the fact that we need to, as a country, be thinking about how we get folks to a level of income that allows them to to meet basic needs. So I think at the federal level, we need to be thinking about those kinds of things. Then as those monies come to the state level, we need to be organized around how does that money get out to families quickly? How do we remove the barriers and not make another bureaucratic process that creates slowdowns and unnecessarily delays in the families who really need the money, getting access to the money? To me, I think that looks like getting the funding out of state bureaucracy and and right into the agencies that are already set up to provide those kinds of services and get, get money out to people quickly. And we need to continue to, to enforce moratorium and pass legislation that gives people renters protections, right to counsel, ability to be on even footing. For us on the ground, we're able to, t- to call together enough non-federal funds that we were actually able to cancel rent for a month. One month in the 12-month pandemic and an ongoing longer-term pandemic certainly is not sufficient for what families needed, but it did give some relief for a month when folks were really, really concerned. And I think the more we can think about how to get non-governmental philanthropic dollars, there are folks who are focusing on the impact of the pandemic that sit in the philanthropic chairs and organizations. I think the more we can get them to think about how to get relief dollars out that will help landlords and help families directly, I think that will be important as well. Well, I think it's beautiful that you were able to cancel rent for that period of time where people were struggling and we were literally in the hurricane of the pandemic. I'm in one of the housing development offices and I can tell I talked to a couple of residents that said that alone relieved them for the month. So I do have to say that that was a great thing that the housing authority did. The one thing I'm wondering is what happens when this period that we're in extends and you find that there's even a larger situation with residents that is living within the housing authority complexes. They cannot afford the rent for a longer period of time when they continue to be unemployment. What does the housing do to avoid eviction in the long term? What can private sectors, as you said, can do to help ECC in that respect? Yeah, absolutely. The cancel rent 
that we were able to do in July was absolutely helpful for families that benefited during that month. And what we used that month to do also was try to engage our families around what their needs were and connecting them to resources that we were aware of in the community, get them onto long-term repayment agreements so that people could begin to make a plan about how over time they might be able to get themselves caught up, try to connect them to things that could help them negotiate their utility bills and, and get into, into arrangements around there. So use that period really to try to connect with families and connect them to resources. And that's what we have needed to continue to do as this has dragged on and will continue to, to drag on and impact families. You know, we can't lose sight of the fact that the families we serve and the families in need of affordable housing often tended to either be the first families that the, holding the kinds of jobs that were eliminated right away. And so they quickly were unemployed or they were those sort of low paid essential jobs that required them to find a way to keep going out into the world and putting themselves at risk without necessarily high uh, reimbursement rates for those things. And so families had to make choices about, is it worth it to keep my job as a cashier at Walmart, having to be in such contact with people for low pay? Or it doesn't make more sense for me to make the choice to stay home with my family because now kids are home from school. And right, so there were real tough decisions families made that impacted their economics. So I think the work needs to be about sort of helping families get back on their economic feet around looking at what the impact of those choices, how do people get back into employment safely and recover some of their income as we're moving forward. And that's got to be a conversation throughout our community because we're going to need long-term sort of relief that is funny. It is money. It's not about learning to budget better. It's about how do we get resource into families? And I think we, um, private sector, public sector, philanthropic, I think all have a role to play in that long-term recovery effort. We often throw around this word crisis. And one of the things I learned when I was in graduate school is that looking at crisis is something of short lived, something of short duration. But I was looking at your testimony on the HB 6430. And it was really intriguing when you get into the weeds of this issue of people not being able to afford to pay their rent, or having to make decisions between eating and paying rent, between buying something for a child and not buying something for a child, that this here issue of evictions is just really lack of affordable housing here in the state of Connecticut. Could you talk about how COVID-19 it's just really a symptom of a much long-term disease. Oh, yeah, absolutely, Jim. Thanks for bringing up Connecticut House Bill 6430 right now, which is one of a series of efforts we're undertaking here to try to address the continued segregation in our communities here in Connecticut. But, you know, you can look across this country and see that these many years past decisions like Brown versus the Board of Education and many years past the Fair Housing Act and civil rights laws of the 60s, that we remain a very segregated community, segregated by race and ethnicity, segregated by income. And so much of that is tied to housing policy. And so those of us that work within the realm of housing have to acknowledge and recognize the history of the industry within which we work, which is one that had very literal on the books discriminatory practices that were the the laws and were the banking policies of our, of our country that said black and brown people, you can live here, white families, you can live here, the places where white families were allowed to live were places where they could build wealth through home ownership, the places where black and brown families were segregated tended to be rental 
housing in urban centers that continue to be under-resourced for, for years. And so we see that it was our history and we inherit that as housers today. And I think we have an obligation to ensure that our actions are not continuing to reinforce old discriminatory practices or not further cement segregation. And so we've got a number of things we're pushing, including that bill that is seeking to free housing authorities to be able to act as developers all over the state and not be constrained to just work within a small footprint of a, of a city. I think it'll give us an opportunity to develop in communities that have successfully blocked affordable housing. And because of the way in which wealth creation and home ownership are so tied in this country, we see places that are right, rich with home ownership tend to have a very underrepresented black and brown community. And so we are looking to try to figure out how to address that through that. And I don't think we can do this work. I don't think we can talk about the inequities we see today that are so exposed during this, this pandemic without acknowledging the ways in which our current day zoning practices, our current day land use practices, the ways in which we're funding housing currently continue to, to support that amount of inequity. And we are called to do things that will reverse that and repair that. That's what I hope to share in my testimony for that bill. And that's what I hope will find enough votes in the Connecticut General Assembly to want to make some changes this session. That's truly amazing. You definitely have some amazing work that you you are working on that is going to change so many lives. Absolutely. B, it's been such a pleasure to work with you and the kind of work you do around small business development. And that I think goes hand in hand with what we're trying to do. Our work is really about, we use housing as a platform, but our work is really about how to break cycles of poverty for families and how to create opportunities for them to build wealth. And so that requires us looking at all the ways in which we spend our dollar and ensuring that we're spending our dollars to support small business, to support the wealth creation within those businesses, work to ensure that smaller minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, what we call Section 3 businesses, that they have the capacity to do the work and get access to those projects and that we are contracting with them to do that work. Work that we do with our residents to build their entrepreneurship. I'm happy to inherit from from Jimmy's time here a a vision for resident-owned business development. And we really support our residents that have entrepreneurial dreams to have opportunities to grow their business through some consultant support that helps them work through business plans, financial plans, and be prepared to compete. Because we see all of those as the opportunities for them to build their wealth and build their opportunity to have broader housing choices. And I love all my families. I hate to see any of them leave, but I need some of them to move on because I've got a very long wait list, right? 30,000 families on our wait list that are waiting for what are 6,000 housing opportunities that we can provide. So we have to we have to have folks move up economically, have more options, transition into the mar- private market as a private market renter or as a private market homeowner so that we can pull family that's been waiting for far too long in a unstable housing situation off of our wait list and, and get them started on their way. I think Jimmy and I have been honored and fortunate enough to work with some of the resident on businesses that you provided the resources for through our programs. One of the things that I've noticed is that many of these companies that residents that were able to become self-sufficient and start their own business, they're still in business. They're doing pretty well. I think one of the things that I also will hope is that they will have the comfort level to leave the, as you can call it, nest. 
so that other people can come in. I think uh, that's maybe another another podcast conversation because I see that there are some that are very successful, but for some reason, I think they feel very comfortable being in the nest of the housing authority. Sincere consulting or base management or Peter's collaborative, right? You all know how hard it is to be an entrepreneur, to be a business owner, to to launch something. It is not an easy not an easy task, and I hats off to those of you that have done it and, and done it well. But as I think about it, for, for anybody that's had success, it's been a combination of folks wanting to work hard at something and having access to resource to be able to do it, and opportunities created, right? People open doors, people introduce you, people tell you the ins and outs, the things that you don't find in the textbook. And I think, you know, when it comes to the families that we're serving, they want nothing different than any of us want. They want a, a safe and decent place to call home at a price point that they can afford. And then they want the same access to opportunities that any of us want. And so whether it's thinking about our youngest babies and, and what we can do to help parents and family support them through the lifespan of our working adults to the end of the lifespan around how we're helping our elderly age in place and have a high quality of life. It's all about creating a safe place to live and a quality place to live. And then from there, giving people the opportunity to really dream into their life. What, what is it they want and how do we help them put those pieces together? And that's what I love about it. And that's probably why it makes sense for me to be a psychologist in doing this work. Thank you so much for taking your time to join us today. Your perspective has been one that I think embodies what we would like to do with this podcast, which is to look at housing from a macro level and see how it impacts so many aspects of life. And I really want to acknowledge and thank you for all you're doing from your platform, not just to run a really important agency providing housing to so many people in New Haven, but to use that platform to really help address housing needs across the state, as you've been advocating for in the legislature. So thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to be with you all. I'm going to say amen to what Peter just said. And as we bring our podcast to a close, this has been really stimulating and exciting conversation. And I know we're dealing with this so-called housing crisis that we think about today. But I really want to leave people with the other thoughts that you put forth. The issue of the long-term systemic issues with segregation of housing, lack of wealth in communities of color, those Things have sown the seed of what we are experiencing today. And I'm really excited that you're focusing our attention on them. And I really want our audience to focus on those things because all too often we live in a, a society when, you know, it's the topic of the moment. We have a very short attention span, but we cannot forget about those underlying causes of things we're seeing today not only in housing, but also you can see the health disparities as well. We have a disproportionate number of people of color dying because of COVID-19, but that only is symptomatic of our healthcare in this country. So COVID-19 has done one thing for me. It has really got me to focus on the fact that there are these underlying causes that we have to address. And I'm so glad that you are taking a lead role in keeping our eye on, on the fall of these other issues that we really truly need to focus on and address if we're really going to prevent issues like this from happening in the future. So again, thank you for 
shedding uh, light on both the short-term problems of eviction, but the long-term problems as well. I really appreciate that. Karen, before we end, you have so many wonderful things coming up. Is there anywhere that viewers that are interested in learning more about the things that you're doing, including the house bill, can reach out to you? Oh, absolutely. And I'm proud we have a newly launched website, so you can visit elmcitycommunities.org and learn more about the programs and the things that we offer. We are up on social media, so you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, Elm City Communities, and certainly reach out and contacting me here at Elm City Communities is always welcome. We want to thank you so much again for taking the time and joining us on our podcast. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be one of the first gifts to the Yimby Nation. Yes, in my backyard. I want everyone saying that. Again, let me just close by saying I, I hope today's podcast has enhanced your understanding of the current housing crisis, but also the long-term underlying systemic problems of housing in this country. And then we are going to have our next upcoming guest, Sailor Mascaro Bruno who's the head of the Public Housing, and she's also chairman of the Connecticut Housing Finance Authority. We're looking forward to that next episode, and we look forward to having you join us as well on Yimby Nation. Thanks for joining us and listening to today's episode of Yimby Nation. Continue the conversation in your communities and on social using hashtag Yimby Nation. Connect with V at www.vaceconstruction.com. Connect with Jimmy at www.sincereconsulting.com. And connect with Peter by searching Collaborative Development Consulting on LinkedIn.com. Please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform so we can continue helping communities thrive. Email us at contact at yimbynation.com or visit the podcast website at www.yimbynation.com. Until next time.